0: Do you want to talk about books? Yeah! Hello, and welcome to A Well Read Life. This is a place to share stories about good books and the reading life. I'm your host, Beth Jameson. Join me as I meander through my reading journey and discover the books that make up a well-read life. Welcome back. I'm sorry about the break-in episodes. I had an especially busy week mothering my three-year-old when I was supposed to get this episode out. For starters, my daughter's two-day-a-week preschool was canceled because of a stomach bug. And then my daughter got into some naptime shenanigans when she was supposed to be sleeping the day I was supposed to be recording the episode, which resulted in a minor injury. She's fine. We didn't have to take her to the doctor or anything, but it gave us a little bit of a scare because she's at the age where she's climbing everything. So in brief, all the time I usually have to work on the podcast was taken up that week. I'm doing this solo, so it's a one-woman show, and I appreciate your patience when I don't get an episode out in time. But We're back to Kristen Lovren's daughter this week, and it's the last book in the series, The Cross. This week, I want to talk about this idea that's been going through the whole series. What happens when we are allowed to follow our own will? And can our will be trusted to give us the happiness it promises? So just mull over those questions as I go into the recap of the last book, The Wife. So last time, a lot happened in the book. I wasn't able to share many spoilers because I wanted you to read the book yourself. But I want to go over and and talk about a few of the things I couldn't mention last time. First of all, Simon is widowed at the beginning of the wife. And later in the book, he marries Kristen's much younger sister, Ramborg. It's an interesting situation. There's a lot to it. Ramborg is very persistent that she wants Simon to marry her. And she is a very young teenager when they get married. And Simon is pretty much twice her age at the time. So it's a it's an uncomfortable situation and it's a, a strange one. But Simon is finally able to have Lovren's as his father-in-law. It's of my opinion that that's one of the driving factors of Simon agreeing to marry Ramborg. Because he loves Lovren's and so greatly admires him. But Simon and Ramborg's marriage is a very tenuous relationship, and you'll find out why in a moment. Also in the last book, Erlen and Kristen have seven sons. It's implied that there's also a few miscarriages as well. And Kristen fully embraces her role of motherhood. She thrives in it. There's some very tender descriptions of motherhood in the book. This is a part that Sigrid Unset excels at. She has such beautiful insight into motherhood. So those passages are worth paying attention to. And while Kristen thrives in her role, Erlen is distant to his infant sons. He loves them, but he grows closer to them only as they get older. He is slightly jealous of the time that they take away from him. And he wants his relationship with Kristen to be like it was before they were married, without all of the inconveniences of their many, many sons. He also pays a little bit more attention to his children by Aline, and especially his daughter Margaret, which causes some tension with Kristen, as you might expect. So all of the parent-child relationships takes its toll on Kristen and Marilyn's marriage, as the book progresses there are also some very heartbreaking goodbyes in the last book and it's a prelude for what's to come in this one where there are even more heartbreaking goodbyes there is a very moving description of death christian deaths in particular most notably lovren's and ronfred now lovren's death scene is much longer than ronfred ronford just gets a little blip But Lovren's, it's this beautiful Christian death scene, and it's powerful and it's touching. And it's one of the the saddest moments in the book, but also one of the most moving and poignant. And now for one of the storylines in The Wife that really drives the latter half of the book. It is Erlen's plot to overthrow the king of Norway. So there was some political unrest at the time this was taking place. In in real Norwegian history. But Sigurd Unset created this particular political rebellion headed by Erland. It is not something that happened in real life. There are some real life characters that feature in it, but this part never happened. And there's a lot involved in this, but in the interest of time, I'm only going to share what is relevant for today. So the king is ruling. Both Norway and Sweden. And Erland believes that the king is neglecting Norway. So he and a few other nobles plot to force the king to abdicate his throne in Norway and have the king's half brother rule in place of him. And if this were to come off, it would be fantastic and Erland would have an even greater place in the political climate of Norway. Kristen is in the dark of this. All And if it doesn't come off and it's found out, then Ireland and the nobles that are plotting it will be on trial for treason and their lives could very well be forfeit. So that's what's happening behind the scenes. We're not really privy to it until what I'm going to talk about happens next. So. Erland ruins it all when he engages in a meaningless fling with one of his peers' wives. It's a bit of a comeuppance for Erland. He's seduced, like he seduced Kristen. And he gets a taste of his own medicine in the latter half of this book. And a majority of it he regrets. He is acting out of the typical Erland impulse. So what happens is Erland and Kristen have a huge fight. He goes to a church service and sees a woman that he's been flirting with since the beginning of the book. And it's been a harmless flirtation until this moment, but he's just fuming with anger towards Kristen. And this is kind of a way to relieve the tension and also get back at her. So he goes home with a woman and the next day he's just disgusted by her sexual experience and prowess. And it is kind of implied that she is a serial adulteress. So this fling has no lasting enjoyment and it is only a physical use of someone, which is demeaning and sad and it makes you cringe as you read it because you see how it's causing a break in the already fragile relationship between Kristen and Erlen. And it's, it's sobering and tragic. I think any time infidelity is in a book, it, it is an element of tragedy because of the deep betrayal that's involved with it. But in addition to this, unbeknownst to Erland, Suniva, the woman he had the affair with, can read. And she finds one of his letters relating to the political plot and retaliates when he spurns her by turning him in. As a result, Erland is later imprisoned. and. Only Simon coming to his aid at Kristen's pleading saves him from execution. And this is one of the moments where we see Erelyn's twisted sense of loyalty. He refuses to turn in his co-conspirators. So it's only Erelyn who is affected by Suniva's betrayal. Kristen and Erelyn strangely rekindle their love. Because anytime they are up against opposition together, their relationship becomes stronger. And this is no exception. Their love is rekindled. And then Erlen is set free. But Hussey in all the work that Kristen did, is lost and forfeited to the crown. So all of Erlen's property is taken from him. And remember, they have seven sons. So there's no property to leave to these seven sons. Kristen has built up this property. She's built this up for her sons. When, when Erlen had no business mind for this, he had no thought or preparation for what his sons would do in life. The work that Kristen did at Hussey was also her redemption in a way from the shame she had faced from having a son obviously out of wedlock. She is elevated by her peers and her neighbors because of the work that she's done and how she's made this estate prosperous, and it's something that Erlen could never do, and then she sees it all lost by Erlen's rashness and impulsivity. But Elisa's life is spared thanks to Simon's defense of him, and Kristen still has the farm inherited from her father, and this property belongs solely to her, and it's one of the only lands that isn't confiscated by the crown. Erlen later in the book that I'm about to talk about, he inherits his aunt's through Ossild's farm. Also, the big reveal comes at the end that Simon is still in love with Kristen, in spite of being married to her sister. Now, this will run throughout the cross. Kristen is pretty clueless where this comes, but Ramborg is not. And in the interest of not spoiling, I won't go into everything that happens with Simon and Ramborg. I'm pretty much going to leave, unfortunately, Simon here for now, because I don't want to give too much away. So we pick up with Kristen's story in the cross today. And once again, no surprise, she's bitter against Erlen. This time, it's on behalf of her sons. So time has passed. They've been at the farm. Erelyn has no proclivity for farming, and really it's up to Kristen to do all the work again. And her sons are getting older, and they don't have property for all of them to inherit. I don't want to give too much of the book away, so it's hard to do a summary now, but all these sins will be tied up in this book. And as I've said from the beginning, this is the story of Kristen's life from seven years old until her death. So we're going to finish out the cycle in this book. Her sons mature, her sons get older. We see what becomes of them, the paths they take in life. We see what happens with Kristen and Erland and their relationship and marriage. And we see what happens to dear Simon, who has been so faithful and stood by Kristen for so long. Just know that this is a riveting read. It is very harrowing. And the preview that we had of death in the last book comes full force in this book. So be prepared to have your heart rent. But I want to use the rest of the time that we have to discuss this book to talk about Kristen's road to Christ, her own journey to the cross, which I believe is the whole trajectory of this book. It is watching Kristen following her as she comes to the ultimate decision of whether she will follow Christ or not. Remember, she is from a Christian household, but the choice is still hers, whether she will follow him or not. We are in the season of Lent now, and this series, and especially this book, are perfect accompaniments to read during the Lenten season. Another book I highly recommend, and one I've reviewed before, is In This House of Breed by Rumor Godden. It's my favorite book to read during Lent. It's one of my all-time favorite books. It is just beautiful. So if you haven't listened to that episode or read the book, I highly suggest doing that next. I want to begin this discussion with Sigrid Unset's thoughts on choice and will in our relationship to God. So how is Kristen going to get from where she is at the start of this book, where she's been all along, to following Christ or not? I want to go back to a quote I shared in the first episode in the series, and it's from the introduction of my Penguin edition of the book. It is I hope that with this new translation, many more readers will now discover Unset's magnificent story of a headstrong young woman who defies her family and faith to follow the passions of her heart. And you know, from the first episode, I took issue with that statement. And not to disparage the writer of it, but I disagree strongly with the sentiment behind it. Kristen Laverne's daughter was written before Sigrid Unset's conversion, which I've talked about before, but she was still on the cusp of of a conversion as she composed the story. So you have to wonder, after finishing the whole series, if Sigrid Unset would agree with the statement written at the introduction of her series. I am of the opinion that she would not. As tempting as it is to agree with this interpretation, of the book. I think it could only stop after the first one, not as the series progresses. That theory just can't be sustained as you get into the last book. And while I cannot speak for Sigurd Unset, one of the fun parts of doing this work is piecing together the clues like a mystery. My theory is that she is warning against following our passions in this way, but she does so with the utmost compassion. Now, as I was reading Sigrid Unset's biography and finishing it up, I came to some of the final chapters on Sigrid Unset's thoughts on choice and free will. She had a very definitive view on it and our relationship with God. She disagreed with Luther's doctrine of the bondage of the human will and the total depravity of mankind. So I want to use a quote again from the Wisnes biography. That I've been reading to explain her view further of this disagreement that she had with Luther. There is a resemblance between God and man, Wisnes said, and in fallen man, the image of God is not completely destroyed. Man's freedom consists precisely in this that he has the power to choose whether he will be as the divine nature has intended or whether he will try to escape from this intention. Even though he knows that punishment is not an exclusive factor, punishment not in the form of a vengeance wrecked by a white-haired divinity but as a necessary consequence of man's own choice to place himself outside the divine order and then Wisnes quotes Sigurdun said, "No human being shall be saved unless he wills it to himself, and none condemned unless it is his will, choosing this rather than allowing his will." To harmonize with the will of God. And here, Wisnes is talking about her work, Catholic Propaganda. Now, I'm not saying that this is gospel truth, her view, but it will help us to understand the work a little bit better. So I want to concentrate on her belief about the human will this idea that we are not totally depraved, but that we have a remnant of the image of God in us, that we are seeking to get back. To him, or that we're going to choose complete and total rebellion, like Adam and Eve in the garden. And I really want to concentrate on this because it's the thread that is woven throughout the three books, and it comes to its greatest crisis and redemption in the cross. Now, let's look at the whole story of Kristen Lavrin's daughter through this lens. We've followed her life from childhood to middle age, and it is easy to glean a broad view of what she has chosen so far. If ever a character was strong-willed, it is Kristen Lovren's daughter. She has a will of iron and woe to the one who comes up against it. She does battle with her father over what she wants, Erlyn and God. Her father, she battles because she wants to marry Erlen. Erlyn because she wants him to be what she wants him to be. And God because she wants her own way rather than his. Close to the end of this book, there's a quote that really sheds some light on this tension and also is a moment of realization for Kristen. It says, Surely she had never asked God for anything except that he should let her have her will, and every time she had been granted what she had asked for, for the most part. now." Here she sat with a contrite heart, not because she had sinned against God, but because she was unhappy that she had been allowed to follow her will to the road's end. She had not come to God with her wreath or with her sins and sorrows, not as long as the world possessed a drop of sweetness to add to her goblet. But now she had come, after she had learned that the world is like an alehouse. The person who has no more to spend is thrown outside the door. You would think that this would be the moment of Kristen's redemption. And as I've mentioned in the other book, she has these moments, and I think they're very genuine, but she still has chosen what she wants first. She has not been able to surrender her will to God. And this is not thinking of God as some harsh taskmaster. It's just that she wants what she wants. She loves her father, but she wants what she wants. She loves Erland, but she wants what she wants first. It's always Kristen first. And it's not gone well for her. No matter what she's done, she does not have the happiness in this book that she thinks that she's going to have towards the end of her life. Her sons are out of infancy. They don't need her as much. They're getting older. And she doesn't know quite how to relate to them. They've gotten closer to Erland. Erland is not the man that she thought he would be. He isn't like her father. He is impulsive, as we've mentioned so many times, and he's not a hard worker. He is very charismatic and he can draw people to him and she loves that about him. But he's stubborn just like she is. So their relationship is so rocky. Her relationship with everybody seems rocky. So she's at this place of just this lack of peace because that's something that our will does not tell us, that there's a limit to it. It never fulfills that great promise that it makes to us that we will be completely happy if we follow what we want. Kristen is allowed to have her will. That's not stopped from her. She isn't barred from doing what she wants to do. She's able to bend her father and Simon to her will and able to marry Ireland, as we've talked over. But that's pretty much the extent of what she can do. She can't control Ireland or her sons. And this is such great frustration for her. It's this moment where we see God allows us to have our choice, but he does put a limitation on it. We can't force ourselves on other people or what we want on other people. Sometimes people will comply with us, yes, but not everybody. Because other people have been given the same dignity as us. They have the same right to make their own choices. So all of this is happening. This It's so embroiled towards the middle of the book between the path that Kristen's will has led her to. And in this very climactic moment, Erlyn and Kristen are in another fight. Erlyn leaves Kristen. He has had enough. He is tired of her retorts, her bitterness, and he loves her. But he goes up to the farm that he has inherited from his aunt, pretty much lives like an animal. It's a, it's a very interesting moment in this story. And this is when we see the stubbornness between the two of Kristen waiting for Erlen to come home, Erlen waiting for Kristen to come home. And it would almost seem like the story's getting derailed and that it's becoming a little soap opera-ish, but really is just showing us how the effect of Kristen's perpetual stubbornness and how her desire unfolds. Because remember, there are circumstances she cannot control. So they're in this limbo of each waiting for the other to come to them. So all of this, all of that to say that this is very crucial still to Kristen's redemption. And I mentioned earlier that this isn't the only time that we've seen some redemption throughout Kristen's life. But I still think that she's holding something back from fully Giving herself to God, she had that moment of when her boys were young. This great devotion and just seeking these the priest and talking to them and and having repentance for what she had done. And I think all of those are preliminary aspects, and I'm not going to go into a bunch of, of theology on that. But she still has not submitted her will to God. And I think this is the crisis that we're facing in this book. It's just the culmination of everything. This final move of submitting herself to God and his will. But in the midst of the separation between Kristen and Erland, a circumstance arises, which I'm not at liberty to share, which forces her to visit Erland and his mountain farm that he's inherited from his aunt. You have this beautiful reconciliation and Erland wants her to stay, but she has to get back to her sons. She can't imagine abandoning her sons to go live on the mountains because they still have two young sons And Erlen wants her to bring the sons to the mountain, but Kristen just cannot let go of really trying to force her son's destiny. She wants to make sure that they are taken care of, which granted is a wise thing, is a good thing as a parent, but she can't be hands off when she needs to. She worries herself about them. So Kristen leaves. Erlen stays. He waits for her. She waits for him. And then months passed and she discovers that she's pregnant and she still waits for Erlen to come. Surely he'll come when the child is born. He doesn't come. She doesn't tell him that she's expecting. And when she gives birth to the son, resentment and anger have bubbled up as usual. And she names the infant Erlen, which is very important to note that within this culture, you did not name a child after a living relative. You only named them after someone who had passed away. And some of it has to do with some old pagan ideas that the child was inheriting the other person's spirit. So when she's doing this, when she names her son Erlen, she is basically saying that Erlen is dead to her. This will all play out in a very dire way, which I cannot reveal right now. What happens next is heartbreaking and harrowing and Tragic. And it would seem that Kristen is at the end of her story, still without that beautiful moment of redemption. Enough to see some redemption in her life, but not that crisis moment. But when we get to that point in the book, it's important to know that she's still being gently wooed to accept the sacrifice of God's son. It seems as if her life is at a standstill at that point. It's not going either way. She's too tired and older and older to exert her will as she once did. And she's also a little too tired, it seems, to accept God's will. But there is always, as I mentioned, a man of God who is reminding Kristen of God's love for her and his offer of reconciliation. And that's going to play a big part in the very end of this book. But finishing this thought on choice and following God, one of the strongest examples in the story is this background of the tension between old pagan practices and Christianity in a post-pagan world? So, that's further removed from Kristen's story. Kristen's story is is much more of the individual deciding if they want their heart's desire or what God has for them. If we take a further look at the story, we see that within everything that's going on in Kristen's life, there is also this bigger battle of will that is going on in the larger culture. And when I say paganism, I mean the old ways of worship in pre-Christian Norway. So it would be worshiping of the old Norse deities, the old practices and rituals of the Norwegian people before the country was Christianized. So there are these layers to the story. So I want to do another quote from her biography again. And it's comparing the old pre-Christian paganism with the neo-paganism that has revealed itself in Nazi Germany. Now, at first, this isn't going to seem like it applies to anything that I'm talking about, but I'm hoping that I can tie this quote seamlessly with the rest of the discussion. Wisnes says, In one way or another, the old paganism was reaching out towards a god, and Christianity did not wage war on man's religious belief as such his belief that he depended on divine supernatural powers. Christianity fulfilled his basic religious need. But the similarity between past and present in this case is only external. We cannot become pre-Christian pagans over again. The paganism which flourishes in us when Christianity is cast out is something quite different from the paganism of our ancestors. And here Weissnez quotes Sigrid said. She says, the old paganism was a love poem to a God who remained hidden, or it was an attempt to gain the favor of the divine powers whose presence man felt about him. Then Wisnes continues with, the new paganism is a declaration of war against a God who has revealed himself. When I read this, I can't help thinking of the golden calf in Exodus when the Israelites have been so beautifully delivered by God from Egypt, from their long years of suffering and slavery. And they turn to an idol made with their own hands to worship instead of God. And it's heartbreaking and it continues to play out in human history. Now, as I mentioned, this quote refers to Nazi Germany, which, as I've said before, Sigurd Unset was very vocal against. But we can also see this tension. Play out at the end of the cross. And some of the ways that we see this, like I said, we're taking that step back and seeing the whole picture. And one of the ways is that Kristen, at the beginning of the book, heals Simon's son who was close to death by methods that Fru Asild had taught her. And they are old pagan practices. And it's enough to scare Simon. He knows what she's doing. And he's grateful his son is saved. But he feels such guilt about it. On Kristen's part, it's a way for her to pay back a debt. And really, she's not even thinking about whether trusting God is going to feature into this situation at all. It's just solely she needs to get something done. And it's easier to depend on herself. And then we see it again. The end of the book, when we were reaching our crisis with Kristen. And this is a very strange moment in the book. But it's also a very beautiful moment as far as for Kristen. Very redeeming moment for her. By this time in the story, Kristen has entered a convent. It's towards the end of her life. I can't give too much away, but it's the year of the plague. And it is ravaging the town around her and all of Norway. The nuns at the convent are sacrificing their own lives for the sick and taking care of them. And Kristen is an eyewitness to all of this. She's seeing it all happen, but she's not participating as much as some of the other sisters are. And this is when we come to that tension between the old and the new. And again, choice. And this is a much more detrimental and weighty example that we're about to see. So, in the midst of all of this death that is surrounding these people, some men in the town revert to the old ways and they take a prostitute's child to sacrifice to the goddess Hell for her to stop the plague. And Kristen and a group of the nuns go to stop them. These are again women who have already put their life in peril, and some of them have already died and or gotten sick. So here we are, a group of nuns coming face to face with these men who are completely leaving Christianity behind, even though they have embraced it in the past, to turn back to these deities that are capricious and and it's always a work of you. You have to work for these deities to be pleased, which is the completely opposite of God who has mercy and grace for us, even when we are not acting as we should. So in the midst of this tumult, the sisters are trying to persuade these men, and Kristen says to them, Go home in peace, dear brothers. Have faith that the worthy mother and these good sisters will be as merciful as God, and the honor of his church will allow them to be. But move aside now, so that we may take this child, and then each of you should return to your own home. The men stood there irresolute. Then one of them shouted in the greatest agitation, Isn't it better to sacrifice one than for all of us to perish? This boy here belongs to no one. He belongs to Christ. Better for all of us to perish than for us to harm one of his children. And here we come to this turning point in Kristen's life. After years of half-hearted devotion, Kristen finally lets go of asserting her will and choosing God's salvation. The people around her have descended into the grossest forms of self-preservation. They're willing to sacrifice a child in the hopes that this deity will be pleased and stop the plague. In the midst of this conversation, an argument with these men, Kristen finds out that this child's mother, who I've mentioned as a prostitute, and she's just shunned by society, that she got the plague and that they shut her up in her hut to die without comfort, without anyone taking care of her, without allowing her a Christian burial or a visit from a priest And Kristen sacrifices her life for the dignity of a prostitute, saying to the men that Christ died for her as well as for me when they try to justify why they've done it, saying that her life was just not of importance. Kristen goes to the shuttered hut where the woman has died in order to retrieve the body and give her a Christian burial. And here we see this beautiful moment also, as I've been talking about. The tension between paganism and christianity of of really the whole view of the dignity of life, so again, this woman who's been cast off, who, as I just said, the men think of her life as having no value; she is pleasure to be used and discarded. Kristen shows the beauty of of God's love and his redemption for us that she recognizes that this woman's life still had dignity and still had value in God's eyes. So even though all around her the world is descending into chaos and it would seem as if God had abandoned them. It's hard not to to think of of so much death and suffering. But we can still see these moments, these beautiful moments of God's people still showing his character through their ministry to others. So Kristen goes To the shuttered hut where the woman has died. And Ulf, her old servant, is there to help her. And she does it in order to retrieve the body to give this woman a Christian burial. But from the contact with the body, she contracts the plague. And in the throes of her misery and illness, she has this beautiful, illuminating thought. And this is where we see Kristen's full redemption and her finally letting go of that stronghold she has on her will and her desire above all. Sigurd Unset writes, It seemed a mystery she could not comprehend, but she was certain that God had held her firmly in a pact that had been made for her, without her knowing it, from a love that had been poured over her, and in spite of her willfulness, in spite of her melancholy, earthbound heart, some of that love had stayed inside her, had worked on her like sun on the earth, had driven forth a crop that neither the fiercest fire of passion nor its stormiest anger could completely destroy. She had been a servant of God, a stubborn, defiant maid, most often an eye-servant in her prayers and unfaithful in her heart, indolent and neglectful, impatient toward admonishments, and constant in her deeds. And yet he had held her firmly in his service, And under the glittering gold ring, a mark had been secretly impressed upon her, showing that she was his servant, owned by the Lord and King, who would now come, born on the consecrated hands of the priest, to give her release and salvation. I just can't help thinking how beautifully this passage illustrates Sigrid Unset's own thoughts in the quote that I read from Wisnes at the beginning of this episode. So there is Kristen's final choice. At the end of her life, she can finally say to God, not my will, but yours. Since we've journeyed with Kristen for so long, I thought I'd share what my thoughts are on her. I think of Mary Lennox from Secret Garden when I think of Kristen, Lovren's daughter. If you've listened to the Secret Garden episode, you know that I did not like Mary Lennox when I was first acquainted with her character. But she has since become one of my favorite characters because of her redemption and imperfection. Mary is changed, but she isn't made into a perfect child. She still retains her former personality, but it has been redeemed. Kristen is much like Mary in my mind. She frustrated me when I first read the series, and I did not like her. And she still infuriates me, but now I have so much more compassion for her without overlooking her faults. It is exactly because of Kristen's faults and flaws, she fights temptations of lust, passion, bitterness, anger, and selfishness, that we see her great need for salvation. And in spite of Kristen's inconstancy in life, her life still has dignity and value. God never discards her. And in the end, her death reads like one of a true Christian hero. She has surrendered her wayward and corrosive will and exchanged it for freedom Reconciliation and the love of God. We know for Kristen that death is not victorious over her soul, for one greater has swallowed death up, and we can echo with the Apostle Paul when he says, O oh death, where is thy sting? O oh grave, where is thy victory? Before I end the episode, I want to make a couple of addendums on my first episode with that brief Sigurd Unset biography. I stated in the first episode that Sigrid Unset grew up as an atheist, but reading Wisna's biography, I am corrected. She grew up in a nominally Lutheran household. She did have exposure to Christianity as a child. She just was not a regular church attender, and neither were her parents. But her mother did teach her her children prayers, and it just seems as if it was more of a part of the culture that they were in but it was not something that had penetrated her heart or was a relationship until later on when she converted later in life. Also, I wanted to share a little bit more about the danger that Sigrid Unset was in during the Nazi occupation. The Nazi party had banned her books and they were hoping when they took Norway to capture Sigrid Unset and force her to do Nazi propaganda on the radio. So there was a lot at stake and her leaving Norway was much more harrowing than I at first realized. So it was reading like an adventure story. It, there was a lot that she had to go through when she made that stand against the Nazi regime. And there's so much in that biography and my hope is because I'm so fascinated by Sigurd Unset, I'm hoping that sometime in the future to do a more in-depth episode about her life, she is just such an interesting person. But if you are able to get a hold of that biography by Winsnes, I highly recommend it. It's just fascinating. Well, that is all for this week. I will be back in two weeks, if all goes according to plan with a new episode. In the meantime, if you've enjoyed today's episode and the podcast in general, would you please leave a rating or a review? It's just a small way that you can get the word out about the podcast. And if you'd like to connect during the week, you can find me at Beth on Instagram or the A well Read Life Facebook group. Thanks so much. Until next time.